Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. A couple of years ago, I was working on a book set in the 1970s, and for research, decided to sit down one weekend and watch all three installments of the Smokey and the Bandit film series. If you've never seen it, Burt Reynolds and Jerry Reed are tasked with smuggling an 18-wheeler full of Coors beer from Texas to Georgia. It's Jerry Reed driving the big rig, and Burt Reynolds famously driving a Pontiac Trans Am to distract the sheriff. It's a great time. You got great actors, you got Sally Field, Jackie Gleason, you got great stunts, great story, great music. It's a blast. My only issue with it, however, it is the single worst depiction of bootlegging ever seen on film. Nobody gets hurt, the good guys win, and everybody goes home happy, except the law. If you know anything, anything at all about bootlegging, you know nothing could be further from the truth. That's why we are so glad to have Philip Andrew Gibbs with us this week to take us deep into the heart of the Blue Ridge Mountains, where brewing illegal liquor was, more often than not, a matter of life and death. Historian, musician, and many more things besides, Phil is the author of Murder and Mountain Justice in the Moonshine Capital of the World, recently published by the History Press. As for Smokey and the Bandit, however, I'll just say this. Like the Godfather trilogy, the first two are great. The last one, you can skip. Y'all can thank me later. Phil, welcome to Crime Capsule, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you very much. How has it been since it has come out? I've actually had great demand for the book. I just did a two-week book tour through Virginia, and... I brought books with me, and of course, the, many of the venues had books, but we ran out of books, and I had to keep reordering. Very, very pleasant problem. <laughs> yeah, right. I, was, I just, yeah, I was surprised. I showed up at the very first book signing. It's both a little program and book signing in Bassett, Virginia. Uh, got there about 10 minutes before showtime, and I saw all these people filing into the Bassett Historical Center, I was thinking, oh, what's going on here? You know, what, <laughs> you know, where, where am I going to do my little program? Well, I get in there and discover they were all there for the program, the book signing. And I, I had 40 books with me, and they bought every one of them. Oh, that's wonderful. And, yeah, yeah. And um, it was kind of hit and miss at some of the other bookstores, but um, it was – it has rather been a pleasant surprise that the book has has been well received, and that that there is a demand for it. And uh, so I'm excited about doing future book signings in Virginia. A lot of the stores want me to come back, and so I'm planning another trip in September and probably also in November. Um, of course, the book hasn't been out that long. It was released in July 17th. Uh, yeah, so it's only been a month, really. So I'm, again, I'm very happy. Well, that is that is a total joy, and you know, you you have written a volume which I think s- speaks very deeply to the folks in that region, in particular. I mean, all up and down 
the Blue Ridge, you have stories and tales and family connections to the kinds of things that you're writing about. And if they say that all politics is local, well, I mean, you're you're touching a nerve, you know, <laughs> and um, everybody knows somebody who was involved in some way <laughs> go, going back 100 years um, in in the trade. But uh, before we actually get to the book itself, I, I want to spend a minute um, asking about about you and your background, because it is so relevant to what you write about. I mean, you are a native of the region. Uh, you, you and your family have grown up in the South. And as importantly, your ancestors have deep, deep ties to the region. So just tell us a little bit about your, your own personal story and, and about your, your deep history there too. Well, my family came from Northern Ireland in the 1720s, 30s, and 40s. And like so many of the other folks in the region, um, at least those who settled the western sections of Franklin County, as well as uh, the mountains of, of the Blue Ridge, uh, these were Scots-Irish. Uh, and you may already know that the Scots-Irish figure rather prominently in this book in explaining, again, well, the backstory when it comes to the traditions and values uh, of the people. And, um, yeah, the, the Woods, the Williams, the uh, uh, Fergusons, and others that who are my ancestors, along with, even with my daddy's ancestors. He, my daddy was not from Franklin County. He was actually from Yancey County, North Carolina, which is as deep in the mountains as you can get because that's where Mount Mitchell is located, the highest peak east of the Mississippi. So all the Gibsons are from that area. And like my mother's family, they Scots Irish, about as Scott, <laughs> about as Scottish as we can get. Uh, but yeah, um, my family, they were all farmers. My mother's family, uh, here spe- specifically talking about my my granddaddy Woods and also my granddaddy Williams, they were farmers and they they eked out a living, um, you know, in. Uh, area of, you know, in Franklin County, known as Callaway and Ferrum, up on the mountain. And they didn't have a lot. I mean, they they lived in many ways just like their ancestors. I mean, things didn't change that much for people in the mountains. You know, you had all this electricity and indoor, you know, uh, plumbing and all of this in, in some of the towns, and people had telephones. But even when my mama was growing up in the 1920s, 30s, and early 40s, they didn't have running water. They didn't have electricity, didn't have indoor plumbing. My granddaddy uh, and could not read or write. Uh, and my granny only had maybe three years of, of education that she got from a little school that had been built by a philanthropist there in the mountains for the mountain children. Um, and my mother, uh, so what I'm describing to you is that here we got we got people that Again, things hadn't changed much for them. I mean, really, they were living like their Scots-Irish ancestors. Um, of course, there were a lot of people in the South who were, you know, again, who lived like, like that, uh, in the Deep South, um, but, but as, well as, the, as well as the mountains. I think it's sometimes hard for us, with all of our modern conveniences, uh, to remember that so much of that struggle really does live 
within reachable memory. You know, all it takes is picking up the phone sometimes and, you know, calling your, calling your daddy or maybe calling a grandparent and asking about what it was like when they were growing up to, to recognize that, you know, that, that level of subsistence living was still very near to us all here in the South. I've got a close friend who grew up on a farm out in Western North Carolina near Boone, sort of Henderson County area. And, you know, he, he grew up pulling rocks from dirt. I mean, they, he called him, you know, himself a dirt farmer, a rock farmer, because you had to farm rocks before you could actually put anything else in the ground. And you did that by hand. Interesting you say that. Uh, I spent the better part of my childhood getting rocks out of, out of the garden. It's just, <laughs> we just have, yeah, that's, uh, now we did not have a farm. I worked on a farm uh, in a neighbor, in a community. Uh, my mother, when she married my daddy, uh, well, my, my daddy got a job working in a furniture factory. And so we didn't uh, actually have a farm. But I, like I said, that's that's the only job I knew as a child, was working on all the area farms, getting up hay, you know, or cleaning out barns or uh, putting up fences or what have you. That's what I did when I was growing up. And uh, But I, uh, of course, I was reminded by my mother of just how easy we had it because we had electricity, we had indoor plumbing. She had none of that. I mean, when she had to get water, they had to get water. They'd go down to the spring. They didn't have a well. A well was a luxury for most people. They went down to the spring, and they had a little a little spring box or a little house. They put their eggs and butter and, you know, their milk to keep it cool. Uh, but can you imagine that? I mean, and, and having a wood stove I mean, that you had to cook on. I mean, uh, cooking a meal was a major production. Uh, and really, for us, it's, you know, it's, it's so simple with micro... <laughs> With microwaves and air dry, uh, air fryers, rather uh, and ovens, my goodness! It's so I, I, my mother told me lots and lots of stories about my granddaddy, and of course, daddy, granddaddy made liquor, like a lot of folks in the twenties, uh, carrying on a tradition that, you know, it was brought over by the Scots, uh, the Scots Irish, and uh, I became fascinated. This is why I became a historian, really, because. My my parents were much were very, much older than most parents, uh, and uh, and and I, we always had uh, my granny my granny Woods living with us. I always or, or sometimes we had Granny Gibbs living with us. So I always I always around these older people had this deep connection to this world that we're talking about. Uh, so I love those stories, and I, I became fascinated with it. One of the reasons that that this is so pertinent to what you're writing about is we can talk all day long and have fun with the notion of moonshine as, you know, oh, you know, that's why they invented NASCAR and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, those, those conversations can be had. But I think for on a much more uh, realist note, I think it's important to recognize that when when folks were making shine in the early part of the 20th century and suddenly it became illegal uh, under prohibition, that emergence of an underground trade or the black market or the illegal trade in it, because there was such a demand 
we have to recognize that shine was a way out of some of this poverty, this deep poverty that folks had been living in for a long time. And when you recognize that, I think what it does is it prevents you from automatically categorizing bootleggers as crooks and villains. Now we're going to we're going to talk about some crooks and villains, but I think it's important to recognize up front that for folks like your ancestors and so many people's ancestors in that region, you know, the the politics of shine were much more complicated than than just, you know, kind of um playing cat and mouse with the law. You know what I mean? It, it, it was actually, it was, a, it was an open door. It was an exit strategy. It was maybe a way to get a better life. It was. Um, my granddaddy, I don't think he really made much liquor before, before Prohibition. But just as you said, when Prohibition was implemented, it was a gift. It was, just as you said, a way out for so many people, a way to, you know, to supplement their income. I mean, my granddaddy didn't make that much. He made enough just to supplement his income and got caught, you know, uh, maybe a night or two in jail, but that was it. I mean, generally the authorities <laughs> sure. were somewhat sympathetic to the moonshiners. Uh, and, and so when a moonshiner was arrested and it actually stood trial, you know, it's hard to find anybody set on a jury that would convict them. It was that was they were sympathetic to them. They may have even been a customer. They may have even been a producer themselves. Well, some of those they jurors. May have been a <laughs> and we're talking about even Commonwealth attorneys and others. Uh, yeah, that there's just sort of a given that you know, let's not worry too much about it. These old boys are just trying to make a living and. It's it's something that that they've been doing for years and years and years, and it's a tradition. It's they take great pride in what they make, uh, but yeah, they are making more money during that time. But what's so interesting though is that even after prohibition, they continue making it, and and there's still a demand for it even after there's legal alcohol. So that in itself is an interesting thing. And even today, you have to, have to ask yourself, why would they continue making it? Because when I go back home, uh, I can get liquor if I want it. And I've, you know, I could confess, I've run it you know, to, <laughs> to, to Georgia. You're among friends here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a professional musician, so I'm often, you know, when I'm at gigs, I have some folks that'll ask me, if, uh, they know that I'm, I can get liquor, yeah. oh, Virginia yeah. liquor, that is good mountain liquor, and they know it's it's a lot better than what they can get down here, largely because of the water, the quality of the water in those mountain streams. So, yeah, there's still that demand, because uh, maybe the novelty of it, the excitement of it, but for many who make it, it's tradition and pride, and they they, they get a kick out of it. Through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, 
and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. a little bit about the, the product itself because it, you write in your book that there are of course many different varieties depending on the you know the source of the water and the you know the particular distillation process the quality of the copper that somebody might use whether it's in their kitchen and so forth you know some of the stuff would uh, you know melt your insides just as soon as it would you know give you a buzz which is kind of the risk that you take you know i thought it was also interesting that you wrote that some producers did not even drink their own product. They only sold it. You know, they, they viewed it as simply a commodity, you know, to produce and sell, not actually to sample themselves. Yeah, I think you're referring to one moonshiner, Homer Philpot, who, who uh, yeah, made a lot of money in the early 1900s in doing prohibition from, from making liquor. But he said, he said uh, that it was not for drinking, it was for selling. And there are other people like him. I mean, they recognize that it could be dangerous. Right? I mean, he says that it's, it's just no good for a man. You know, they don't rot your insides. And uh, but he did make a quality liquor, by all accounts. And uh, most in Franklin County did. I mean, you had some who were more about quantity than quality. But it is true. It is true that. Um, yeah, there are those who just recognized it as, you know, it's 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 an enterprise, uh, brings money to the home, and I've seen what it's done to other folks. I'm I'm going to stay away from it. Uh, so, because uh, really, what they're making, they still make is a hundred proof. Pretty strong. Yeah, well, hundred proof that means it's fifty percent alcohol. So, yeah, uh, this. This is, uh, yeah, you, you can't drink a lot of this uh, without... <laughs> suffering some consequences, you know, for your garden yeah, variety. Yeah, your, your yeah, kind of supermarket right. shelf stuff is going to be 40% by volume, but when shine gets up into that 50 and 60% yeah. territory, you got to be real careful, and you can't even really dilute it down, you know, to much success. <laughs> it, just, it just hurts. <laughs> it just hurts. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, now, the, the liquor made in, in, in Franklin County, I've, I've certainly had my share of it, and it's quite smooth. And that's the, that's the insidious nature of it, <laughs> uh, that it's, it's so smooth. And I've seen grown men just fall down after having only a few drinks, I mean, because it just, 
it creeps up on you. And uh, but yeah, but it's it's still I will say very good, very good whiskey, good quality whiskey. That but you have to take it in moderation. Now you write in your book that uh, there is a remarkable level of ingenuity that folks who were making shine had to um, display or employ in order to actually create the volume uh, worth selling. You might have somebody with just a little kitchen still that makes it just for themselves and their neighbors or the, you know uh, their families, that sort of thing. But you actually did have major producers. Tell us a little bit about the stills themselves that folks were using in the day, because there's a wide variety, and some of them are truly impressive. I um, would you know, point out that generally the, the folks who came over to uh, Franklin County and the Blue Ridge, uh, again, these Scots, Scots-Irish, they, um, they initially brought what we call turnip steels, that they were smaller steels that resembled a turnip, a turnip bulb. And they were fashioned in such a way that they could easily be transported. Because in Northern Ireland and also in the lowlands of Scotland, and the northern borderlands of England, uh, you had people, of course, charged with collecting revenue ch- taxes, and they would these these folks would uh, uh, that is the uh, whiskey makers uh, you know wanted a steel that could easily move easily move you know from place to place just simply to elude the, uh, the revenue officers. And so that turnip steel was introduced to, you know, uh, to the mountains. Uh, of course, eventually people started becoming having larger operations, based based in many ways off of that same design. Okay, but then we get into the 1960s. I'm leaping ahead, understand? But then then you have people who, as you just said, are very much about quantity mass production and so they start uh, using what we call um, submarine stills okay uh, and these they resemble a small submarine I mean we're talking about a hundred gallons here I mean and they would cook everything in that one steel sometimes it's referred to as black pot because the old days the way you, the preferred way of doing this was to have a mash box you know where you had your corn and sugar and all that. And, of course, you create what's kind of a beer. And then, of course, that's the steel. But that was separate. It's not actually in the steel. Well, the, the submarine steels were about is just speeding up the process and cooking it all in that one pot. And, of course, many people felt that kind of liquor was not very good. And, and they eschewed, you know, you know that, that approach. But... Um, yeah, you get to the 60s and the 70s, Franklin County, I mean, I mean, you would have operations with, you know, uh, six or seven, 400, 500 gallon steels just lined up. And, <laughs> and uh, they, um, as you said earlier, they, they came up with ways to fool revenuers. I'm not sure if you recall in the book, uh, but the cemetery still. I loved it. Uh, you know, I think that might have been one of my absolute favorite parts of the whole book. I remember staring, <laughs> staring at that photograph by Morris Stevenson, and we'll come back to Stevenson in a bit. But you know, staring at that photograph, thinking, you know, these guys are the 
I mean, it's clever. It's real clever. And who's to say driving down that, you know, that old bypass road, you know, you just see a couple cinder blocks with a cross out in front of it. You think, oh, neat little country churchyard. <laughs> well, <laughs> take a closer look, son. <laughs> well, there are actually some that uh, claim that there were steels that were put in churches or or hidden around churches, um, and uh, no one told on them. And so, of course, people might think, well, that's that's the last place you would look for a steel, you know, the First Baptist Church. I, yeah, <laughs> they don't know Baptist very well in that case. You know, I will. Well, <laughs> I can yeah. vouch for that. <laughs> well, I grew up but, in you know, the Southern Baptist Church, so I know what you're saying. I know how many Baptists you take fishing, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, the the real question is, though, you know, this amazing moment when you take a look at the cemetery stills, I, I did have to ask you about w- one specific moment, because, and I, I might have read it wrong, Phil. I, I don't think I did, but I, I just felt compelled to double check with you on this. You describe a a barrel that was placed not just on an exhumed coffin, but on the actual cadaver. Is that right? There's some situation where they they had a barrel with a spigot and it had shine in it, and you actually went right. to the grave to 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 go and get right. your tipple. I mean, wait, yes, now sir. what? <laughs> they didn't actually have it. On the body, they had it on the coffin. Okay, it was on the coffin. Well, that makes me feel better slightly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they had a, a, a sizable bear they could fill up quart jars with, you know. And so it was it was a great disguise, a great a great ruse. So um, again, you have to admire the ingenuity, uh, the creativeness uh, of these folks. Um, these are not these were not these were not ignorant you know, um, dumb people at all. They are incredibly bright. Uh, they had they had a long history of figuring out how to survive and and how to to elude the authorities. And so yeah, all that was passed down. But again, these people these folks are very, very bright, very creative. Insofar as they uh, would have passed all of the chemistry tests, you know, anybody could have could have offered them, you know, with flying <laughs> colors. Um, you know, there there is this element of risk involved, and there is an element of once prohibition enters into effect, you know, the, the landscape changes. And uh, we do need to talk just a, a little bit about the, uh, the prohibition agents and the dance of, you know, busting up stills, trying to figure out where they are, enforcing the law, um, which characterized hundreds of miles of, you know, the Blue Ridge, right? I mean, it was this massive area which which federal agents had to patrol and understand um, in order to, to police and and try to enforce the law, whether you believe that the law was right or wrong in that instance is, is irrelevant here. Um, I, I, think, I think what I want to ask you, Phil, and this is a hard question, um, but it comes directly from your book, is I mean you you write that Franklin County, as far as the prohibition efforts went, was one of the single most violent counties for uh, interactions between law and 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 um, moonshine makers uh, in the entire country, and there were 
so many folks who ended up being shot, stabbed, killed, thrown off cliffs, dynamited, you know, whatever it was. And, and for some reason, Franklin County was this kind of epicenter of violence. Why was that? What possible explanation is there for that? Well, first, uh, I do want to clear up something that you said. Um, Generally, when you get to the 1920s and 30s, the moonshiners did not did not really kill. That was even later on. Kill revenue revenue officers or others, uh, as as long as they were just simply boys, you know, in the county who were doing their job. In other words, people needed work. They needed work, and uh, there was a feeling, you know, what. They're just they're just trying to make a living, and if they catch me, that's fine. Okay, okay. Uh, now there was an exception to that. Now, if you had a moonshiner who became a revenue officer, and then things changed, that they're they're the ones who got shot because they were they were considered to be a turncoat. And of course, anyone who told on. Uh, uh, a moonshiner could risk yeah, getting shot. You know, there are episodes where you might have someone who's well known to be an informant uh, that uh, they could end up dead. In fact, you had a lot of vigilantism, you know, in, in the county. And of course, you're asking me uh, uh, about the violence. Well, the thing is, there was a feeling, on the, there was a belief on the part of folks in the county, and also it's something I think is very pronounced in Scotch-Irish tradition, and that is defending your livelihood, defending your family, defending your personal honor. Uh, the Scots are very, very, very much about manly honor, and that, that has been written about by countless historians. They were what were called old order uh, German Baptists who still, in some ways, find them there in the county who wear the clothes that you would associate with the Amish, and they are very, very prominent dairy farmers. And uh, but they're very different people, uh, pacifists. Uh, so the people actually that were engaged in the violence, I mean, I have to confess, you know, they, they are the Scots Irish, and a lot of it has to do with what I just described uh, certain notions of honor property rights, again, uh, family. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a quickness to resort to violence at times uh, for, over things that we might be willing to overlook. For example, in the book, uh, there are several cases of someone just happened to cross property of uh, somebody, and that results into a violent confrontation where someone gets killed. And to go back to the very first chapter of the book, entitled A Year for Murder, that was the issue uh, that, that led to uh, the, the, the murder of, of Terry Floor by a notorious moonshiner who had on numerous occasions gotten in fights over property, over somebody supposedly trespassing his property. In some cases, not even trespassing on his property. Just just uh, suspicious that they might be up to something and willing to use violence. And you could argue that the culture of, of defying authority, 
you know, that came from what moonshining itself plays a role in this. I mean, it, it leads to a kind of lawlessness um, and that or that you make your own justice. There's a very good reason why I chose uh, Murder and Mountain Justice as the title, because you find in so many cases folks seeking their own justice, and often that was from uh, from violence. I mean, uh, I've in some of these signings, I've I've tried to give people illustration of 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 this violence that that. Uh, <laughs> was rife in the South, largely because of this culture of honor. Uh, you may know the famous story of Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson, who killed a man in a duel, he fought several duels, but he went into one duel determined to kill the man because he had said something, something negative about his wife, Rachel. By the way, Rachel, <laughs> Rachel Donaldson, the Donaldson family lived in Franklin County, by the way. <laughs> small world, yeah. It's a very uh, yeah, small world. Th th it is. It, 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 and then later they moved to Tennessee. He went into a duel determined to kill a man who had said something negative about his wife. And he ended up getting shot in that duel and carrying that, that ball till the day he died. But he, but he said that he was going to kill this man, this Charles Dickinson. And... There were no if ands, or buts about it. I'm going to do this because this man needs killing, you know. And so that's an illustration of this. He goes on to be president of the United States. That attitude, you know, he has it coming. He needs killing. Um, I'm going to settle this my own way. You know, that, that runs like a bloody thread throughout the whole of your book. There are so many individuals who end up on the wrong side of a revolver, you know, because somebody else thought that that just had to be, that was the only way to solve, you know, the problem. And I guess the last question that I have for you uh, before we turn next week to um, where you enter the story and this pivotal year of 1978 and so forth. Uh, the last question I have for you regarding the overall culture of uh, some moonshine in that part of the Blue Ridge is where where do you draw the line between someone legitimately trying to protect their family and doing so with a uh, a sincere heart and a kind of systematized paranoia that everybody out there is an enemy or suspect in some way. Because it seems like, from, from your account, that's a pretty thin line. Yes, yes, it, it could be, and it was in many cases. Well, you know, again, my granddaddy, just using him as an example, was he was, he was a man who had a, he had a temper, but he was not a violent man. Uh, and he made what liquor he made to help his family. Um, and there were others like him, but there are others too. And you know, uh, a fellow by the name of Jay Bird Philpot, uh, that, that uh, violence was just necessary. And um, I, I do get concerned about, you know, 
Well, I, I, you know, again, in writing the book, the, the, there's so much violence that appears in it, and uh, I, I do not want to stereotype people. Uh, and but the thing is, stereotypes endure largely because there's always some element of truth to them. And uh, the these things happen. I mean, people, yeah, uh, you would say. My God, I mean, uh, it's one thing to make liquor, but it's another thing to engage in this vigilantism and this willingness just to ambush somebody uh, and just settle, settle these conflicts with violence. But it's true that it was unthinkable uh, in the, in, in the Scots-Irish tradition to sue somebody, to go to court for defamation of character or some other reason. You handle it yourself. You make, you make your own justice. And, and everything I write in this book, by the way, is documented. I, I hope you, you did recognize that. I would make sure that, you know, the papers I consulted, the interviews, the court documents, I want to make sure that people understand this is supported by facts. And, and uh, but we also have to understand, too, that um, most of the people in Franklin County were not violent. You know, most of these people were just good, hardworking folks, you know, who uh, tried to raise their kids the best way and teach them, you know, some from strong values of, of, of community and, and, and the importance of connection to land, to place, and all of that. Um, but you do have that other element, and it tends to be it was it tend to be in the western sections of the county, where so many of the Scots Scots Irish settled, and of course where you had moonshining going on. That's where you found most of the violence. One of the things that I appreciate most about your book, Phil, is the fact that you I'm not trying to make a pun here shine a light on the actual the grittiness of it and the realism of it. And it's, it's not a cartoon account of uh, the struggles that people were going through in order to survive. And in some cases coming into conflict with other folks who were just trying to survive. And um, it is a, it's a challenging account to read because there is so much suffering in it. And yet, and yet, you know, you're very careful to explain why people were making the decisions they were making uh, in just this very realist format. So we'll, we'll get into some of that next week as we start to look a little bit more closely at, say, the Philpot family and, you know, where you come into the story. But, you know, the, your book is a necessary antidote to, I think, the, uh, the kind of cultural narrative of, oh, moonshine was all just about fast cars and NASCAR and, and having fun and good times. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. And I, I'm grateful for you for your very even-handed approach, you know, with respect to that. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yep. Well, we'll pick up right here next week, and um, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Philip Andrew Gibbs, author of Murder and Mountain Justice in the Moonshine Capital of the World just published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit arcadiapublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Phil. See you then.
Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookyScienceSisters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you and stay spooky.